Hi, everybody. This is uh, God's Hat for the Sad Truth. Today, I have a repeat guest and possibly the shortest time elapsed from one appearance to the next. Heather McDonald, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I didn't know that, God. I'm quite I'm quite honored. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's, it was. It's, I went... it seems like it's been a very long time, so I've been kind of a little bit melancholy and resentful, but uh, I, I shouldn't have been, I guess. <laughs> I think it was January 2022 that you made your inaugural appearance, but let me... Uh, Reread for those of you who don't know Heather, the few people who don't know you. You're the Thomas W. Smith Fellow of the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of the Institute Institute City Journal. You're an attorney by training and a New York Times bestselling author. The book that we're going to be talking about today that was released this year is uh, titled When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. So true. But some of your earlier books... Let me just mention them very quickly. Some of them are anthologies. Others are you know, straight books. The Burden of, of Bad Ideas, How Modern Intellectuals Misshape Our Society, Are Cops Racists, The Immigration Solution, co-authored with Victor Davis Hansen, who's been on this show, and Stephen Malenga, The War on Cops, and uh, your previous book prior to this one, The Diversity Delusion. Did I cover all the key points from your bio? Do you want to add anything? No, no, let's get on to it. It's too boring. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so I guess maybe before we delve into the book, or maybe it's a good segue to, to your latest book, since we last spoke, January 2022, so it's about a year and three months, has the infestation of parasitic ideas gotten you know, worse, no difference, or it has improved? Where are we? It's worse. Uh, I'm sure, God, you're seeing it as much as I am on a practically daily basis, there's some uh, preposterous emission from a an academic medical organization, a scientific organization, proclaiming uh, itself racist, proclaiming science ma racist, mathematics racist, uh, declaring that diversity is the path upwards. So I don't see much pushback. I guess the only the only bright light on the horizon is the uh, willingness now of some politicians, such as led by Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, and this is not intended as any kind of political pitch, but I just observe dispassionately that he actually is stepping up uh, to the academic fiction machine and saying, you do not, we are not gonna spend taxpayer dollars on this ridiculous idea that colleges need diversity bureaucracy in order to treat their minority students fairly. We're not gonna fund that. We're not gonna fund any university that has a diversity oath. So that's a good sign. But for, coming from the institutions themselves, uh, I would say that the, the post-George Floyd neuroses, mental, emotional, psychological breakdown continues apace. Yeah, I mean, it. you know, you're exactly right that I see it on a daily basis. And of course, you know, having written The Parasitic Mind, you'd think that somehow I'm immune to being surprised by the insanity. But every day I wake up and I see an email and I go, what the F? So I'll just give you a few examples. And, you know, I usually try as a courtesy to not directly criticize my own university, just out of, out of a sense of etiquette, uh, even though, of course, they exhibit all of the parasitic nonsense that any other school would. If, if anything, Concordia, my university in Montreal, probably scores higher on the woke meter as compared to most schools. It's kind of woke central. Canada, of course, is 
scores very high on that walk meter. Quebec is not great. And then Mon Montreal and my university are really not doing well. I just saw a a uh, an alert that came out. I can't remember the exact amount, something like $123 million uh, grant uh, uh, awarded to, I mean, the lead investigators from my university, but it's really a collection of schools to indigenize artificial intelligence. Did you... Did, did you hear that, Heather? To indigenize artificial intelligence. I think I'm probably not smart enough to understand what that is. Maybe you could help me. Can you can you guess what it might mean? Oh, man. It means the end of artificial intelligence. It means like the end of Western civilization. Uh, there's never been a civilization like this that has declared that its most powerful principles that transcended human irrationality with the assumption that there is possible to have universal knowledge, the scientific method uh, that and 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 computer reasoning, mathematical reasoning, that this is somehow flawed and and racist and sexist and oppressive and and genocidal, I, it's beyond belief. And so I, I assume it what it means as a very crude matter is a whole lot of grant making uh, going to people of of, I don't know what your phrase is, native Canadian descent uh, to do indigenous math circles. We do that in the United States as well. The National Science Foundation, uh, which has been a, just an absolute funder of crazy intersectionality, queer research for, for a long time now. It has funded uh, indigenous Navajo math circles in the hope that that pretending that there is any sort of comparability between Native American counting systems and what we have achieved in Euro the European tradition of math, uh, that that will somehow propel the next, uh, you know, able prize winner to be an, a Native American. So it's really probably just a spoil system. <laughs> Do you think, uh, and of course, you get into all of these examples in your latest book, you know, across many different domains and, you know, classical music and medicine and, and which which that's kind of cool because it shows that, you know, there are no disciplinary boundaries or, or centers of excellence where the nonsense, you know, somehow it's immune for the craziness to enter. Wherever there is merit-based systems, the the parasitic ideas go in. But do, do, do you think that the people who support this, who promulgate this, let's say, take it in my ecosystem, in the universities, and I'm asking you to speculate here, but let, let's try it. Do you think most of them in the deep recesses of their mind know that this is performative and they know it's bullshit? Or, or as the old saying goes, first I have to lie to myself before I lie to others. Do they actually internalize it and believe that we won't be able to make any advances with the human genome unless we indigenize the the human genome. I opt for the latter, God. I I do think uh, that they they're simply a, a refusal to look at the facts of our world, which are these vast academic skills gaps that that are the real reason why we don't have proportional representation in the United States of blacks in meritocratic institutions or in Canada. Of, of so-called indigenous people and meritocratic institutions. They're so terrified of the persistence of those academic skills gaps that they have just an immediate like split second 
shutting down of any kind of possibility of the facts entering their worldview and that they have actually do believe that ideas of merit or excellence are somehow simply products of, of white supremacy. But I, you know, I get asked this a lot and, and it is a question that raises itself again and again and again, as you say, like every day one is shocked by the leaders of some of our most cherished important institutions turning on those institutions to, to accusing them of racism or sexism and one always wonders what are they seeing that i'm not seeing or what are they not seeing that i'm seeing it's it's just bizarre but i mean that's why right i mean not to not to toot the horn of my last book but that's why i use the neuroparasitological model right because it requires that framework to understand how otherwise high-functioning human beings, and again, speaking in the context of the university ecosystems, these are educated people. These are people who are well-read. These are people who su supposedly have spent their lives to try to you know, navigate through intellectual landscapes. For them to be this zombified, it could only be because it literally is ideological brainworms that are causing them to completely lose their ability to reason. Nothing else could explain it. I know. Uh, and I actually like it because, well, I guess, I guess maybe this isn't the case. What I hope is that, you know, let's, let's look at law school faculties. So not your field, but, but close. I've never known a more IQ obsessed group of people than law school faculty. These guys are just obsessed with intellectual ranking, including left-wing professors. I remember in law school, one of the uh, most radical of the critical legal studies guys that taught criminal law would get together with uh, somebody from the from the Stanford Law Review and they would rank all the students in the Facebook based on how smart they were. So I hope that somewhere in these left-wing institutions, it, it gnaws away at the faculty, the white males, the often Jewish white males who are there based on merit to have to put up with mediocre colleagues who have been put on the faculty because of the trivialities of sex or race, who are doing just completely fatuous identity-based scholarship, like in the field of law, you know, writing about the significance of braids as a Latina American. I'm talking about hair braids. Yeah, yeah. And you know, these personal anecdote stories that now we're supposed to think constitutes legal scholarship. I would hope that it galls them. I would hope that it galls those legacy New York Times editors and journalists, again, overwhelmingly Jewish white males who were at the Harvard Crimson or, you know, Hasty Pudding Club, uh, you know, just fabulous journalists when they also have their newsroom now populated by people who are diversity hires that it, it just sickens them, but I fear that it doesn't. I fear because of your intellectual brainworms that they have internalized that there are two sets of standards and what these diversity hires are doing with their pseudo scholarship that has been created simply in order to give them a chance of working their way up the tenure ladder. Uh, it should be judged by a completely different set of standards.
What? So I, I can't remember if I asked you this the last time you were on the show, and even if I did, it's it's worth revisiting. But I I don't think I had. So one of the things that I study as a you know behavioral scientist, as a consumer and evolution psychologist, are individual differences, right? What what are some predictors that might help me understand why this group of consumers might engage in behavior X? Whereas this group of behavior, uh, consumers behave in uh, variable B. Uh, and of course, sometimes it might be, for example, personality traits, because personality traits is one of the fundamental ways by which we assort people. That's what makes us different. We, we, we both have two eyes, but we score very differently on a whole bunch of personality traits. So if I were to ask you to just speculate, what do you think might be some personality traits? Uh, unless you have other predictors that might explain why you and I might be somehow immune to the brain worms versus the, you know, you're, you're referring to the Jewish white males, but I, I don't, I mean, yes, I understand that, 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 that link, but of course the, the possibility of administrators and professors who have been parasitized is much greater than that. Are there a set of traits that you have kind of surmised might explain why Heather is not parasitized by all this bullshit, whereas all of her colleagues from her class at Stanford are? What is the predictor? Well, first of all, let me just clarify. I'm not saying that uh, Jewish males are particularly subject to brainwashing or, or misunderstanding their world. I'm simply saying that they are the legacy merit hires. Right. Fair enough. So... They, they are no more prone to these brain worms than anybody else who su succeeded them, but they are clearly, uh, let's just say, I mean, they're they're smart and they're competent and they they got where they were through hard work. So I'm not I'm not saying that they're. Got more it. Um, um, I know I'm not going to speculate that because I do know that the 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 left would say the same about us. They would say. How can you be so blind to systemic racism? How can you possibly think that uh, personal behavior and personal decision-making is more responsible for the ongoing racial disparities that we see than the fact that the entire world is stacked against Blacks? When you, know, you can see the, the disparities in mortgage lending or a personal income, household income, these are clear, uh, and so you are you are blind to the overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly obvious reasons why we should still continue declaring ourselves systemically racist. Um, so I, I just I'm very conscious, and I I always try and ask myself, you know, the principles that I would say if I would I apply them to the other side, how would they view me? Uh, so. I don't know. I mean, I do. I'll say about myself that what I feel is I I can't stand idiocy. Uh, I've I've always been committed to meritocracy, even when I was a liberal by default. I was never uh, fanatically political, but I just absorbed all the assumptions of the coastal elites through my elite education. Um, but but I when when the issue of meritocracy became more prominent in the eighties when we became more aware of the ubiquity of racial preferences, it always rubbed me the wrong way. And um, I, I guess, I, I don't know whether it's the question of guilt. I mean, I, I do remember I had, I was uh, 
in graduate school, I was I was at Yale in New Haven, Connecticut, and I brought back this beautiful Holdsworth bicycle from England that I loved. I always fall in love with my bicycles, and it was stolen from outside the Yale Law School. I'd had a chain and you know a heavy lock and everything. And my view at the time was, well, it serves me right. Here I am, this privileged white girl that can afford a Holdsworth bicycle. And even though at that point in the 1980s, I was clueless about how big the disparities in urban crime were, uh, I nevertheless had some hazy sense that it was probably stolen by some black teenager in New Haven. And at that point, I felt, I, I just felt because of my white guilt, I deserve this. I have no right to complain about this bicycle being stolen. So I'm just saying that I too have been prone and susceptible to, to collective white guilt. I'm over that at this point for sure. Um, but but I can say that I, I've always had a, an instinct for meritocracy and what that stems from, I don't know. So I can maybe I could answer my own question and you you can respond what you what you think of it. So, I mean, certainly there is a form of existential guilt that many of the, you know, super woke progressives experience, not un, not unlike how you might suffer from survival guilt when the plane crashes and what, what was so good about me that I survived, whereas the person right next to me through the vagaries of life died. So I think there's definitely kind of a psychoanalytic link that we could draw here between, you know, why am I, uh, you know, a wealthy person who goes to Princeton and Cornell, whereas other people don't? There, it just rubs me. Now, to that point, and so in answering the question of what makes you and I different from the, the woke people, I think a strong sense of personhood in, in Arabic, there is an expression, uh, which I'll say in Arabic and then I'll translate, right? Shakhsiyeh. Uh, Shakhsiyeh means, you you know, there's no fi- there's no fissures in your personhood. You're strong. You present yourself to the world tall and proud. And I think that inoculates you against some of that existential guilt that we're talking about. Now, let me add two more, although I think it the, the full story is a bit more complicated. I think that if so, you may have heard of uh, the psychometric uh, scale called internal versus external locus of control. External locus of control is things happen to me because of the environment, because of God, because of it's written in the sky, because of uh, white supremacy, because of toxic masculinity. So you ascribe things to the outside world. Someone who has internal locus of control, things happen to me. I did well on the exam because I'm smart and I studied hard. I did poorly on the exam because I sucked and I went out and partied, right? Now, what most people do is they attribute successes internally and attribute failures externally. I think what happens to a lot of these super bleeding hard, full empathetic, uh, you know, woke people is that they probably score high on uh, uh, external locus of control, at least for the, the people that they pat on the head, the victim class, right? They can't have not done well in not getting into Yale because they made personal choices that did not allow them to get into Yale. It must be some external evil boogeyman that led to that. Right. And then one final point I'll add is, and this is very much within the wheelhouse of my academic work, where I, you know, I look at the evolutionary roots of human behavior. I think many of the people in in the academia ascribe to the tabula rasa view of the of the human mind. We're all born with empty minds, with equal potentiality, and it's only socialization, it's only the environment that then 
results in the outcome that we have. So the only reason why I didn't become Michael Jordan is because mom didn't hug me enough or she did hug me too much, but it can't be because I was born with a genetic endowment that was lesser than Michael Jordan. That sounds wrong. That sounds unfair. So I think you put those together in a cocktail and then you sh you can show that the people who have those sets of mindsets are much more likely to believe in the non-meritocracy that you talk about in the book. What do, what do you think of that story? Well, I think your three factors are a range of, of things that are inherent. And <laughs> in fact, sort of what we're born with psychological dispositions then down the scale towards propositional features of the world. Um, so I don't think anybody's born with uh, a predisposition towards a tabula rasa idea of, of human potentiality and we all have equal capacities that are developed or not depending on our environment. That to me is something that you would pick up from your environment. But the issue of, of your first one, um, the strong sense of personhood and no fissures in personhood. I, I mean, I would be interested if you approached people from the left on that and said, do you think this describes you? Would they agree with that? Uh, again, like I'm always trying to flip the tables and say, well, they may say the same thing about us. So would they would they acknowledge your analysis of them that somehow conservatives have a stronger inherent sense of personhood and liberals don't i doubt it i i my guess is they would feel like they have just as unified a sense of personhood um as far as the internal and external locus of control uh it i think that's depend it's different one's own sense of control the progressive knee-jerk reaction is to deny personal responsibility and agency to the victim groups, but that's different than having one's own internal locus of control. I, I suspect that a lot of these left-wingers uh, are fairly much self-starters and, and may be good at deferring gratification and, and working hard, but their worldview depends on saying that the victims and the people that they're worried about and they're terrified that the academic skills gaps are not going to close and that there is something inherent about them uh, that they cannot be expected to have an internal locus of control that they are completely uh, the victims of their environment so it could be internal internal locus of control for me as a woke liberal but when referencing the victim groups then it becomes kind of an external locus of control by proxy so for them it's external but for me that's an interesting thing that could be tested empirically okay now in your book you go through the different domains where you know you see race-based you know metrics trumping uh meritocracy and so on how did you choose those particular ones? You know, classical music, medicine. You know, I'm sure that your list must have been much longer. You know, you've got a, a list of 30 possible domains, but you got to bring them down to 10, 12. What was your mechanism for choosing the particular domains to cover in the book? Well, actually, I think it's pretty synoptic. I don't know what's outside. You, you know, you've got STEM on the one hand, you've got humanities, the arts and culture on the other, and then you've got law enforcement on the third, I'm sort of thinking, what falls outside of that? I don't know. It's, it's. I think that pretty much covers it. And 
Um, I chose them because, I mean, to be perfectly frank, the, the STEM and medicine stuff is probably the thing that gets people, maybe one hopes, finally paying attention. You know, if you can say, look at, you you should have no confidence from here on out that if you're brought into an emergency room after a near lethal car crash that the doctor coming through that door is there because of merit and not racial preferences um and but it's also the sheer you and i share the same amazement and astonishment that people who have dedicated their lives to science and medicine are so cowardly that they are willing to to call those amazing traditions sexist and racist when they are not. The culture aspect is because it's so close to my heart. I, My life would be a, a wasteland without classical music and, and art and literature. So that's something that I'm just gonna fight for tooth and nail. And then law enforcement is something I've been writing on for a long time. and we're living it. I mean, here, you know, in, in American cities, since especially since the post-George Floyd race riots, uh, the degree of public order breakdown and, and criminality that's come out uh, is, is beyond belief. And it's also uh, one of the areas where the degree of, of denial, of duplicity with regards to race is the most extreme. I mean, we are all living these incredible fictions that say that the threat to black lives comes from whites or the police, which is absurd. Blacks are killing each other off at magnitudes higher rates. It's not whites killing them, it's not black, it's not police, it's blacks. And yet we've got this, this melodramatic, fictional narrative bathos of every time a black child steps outside his parents rightly worry that he'll be gunned down by a police officer or a white person president joe biden embraces that fiction and we all go along with it I, it's 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 another one of those stunning head scratchers like you feel god when you get the latest missive from from the american psychological association oh, yeah. Canadian psychological association about <laughs> You know that the the the, uh, the sexism of our of our psychological scales. I feel the same when I hear Black Lives Matter phoniness about caring about Black lives and the and the alleged threat to them, which is from whites. In fact, here's who's threatening whom: uh, Blacks are threatening whites. That's the reality. Eighty-seven percent of all interracial violence between whites and blacks, and whites and, and blacks and whites is committed by blacks against whites. Uh, that's just the reality. The reality of anti-Asian hate crimes in the United States. The people who are beating up on these frail elderly Asians walking along a sidewalk who are stomping on them, hanging them upside down. We're all supposed to pretend it's white supremacists. It's not, we've, we've seen the videos, it's blacks. And yet we all go along with these fictions. I'm sick of living in a fictional world. Well, so I think to, you, earlier you said, well, you know, you you have a, you're, I don't know if you use the word allergic, but I'll, I'll put it in your mouth. You're allergic to idiocy. And I always say that I'm allergic to bullshit. There's actually a scale, by the way, that was developed a few years ago, a psychometric scale 
that measures susceptibility to succumb to bullshit. I mean, it's it's a literally a scientific scale. Uh, so, but that speaks to my earlier point about having a strong sense of personhood. The the reason why, as you said, people go along because I I've always argued that you know cowardice should be added to the seven deadly sins. Now, some would argue that you know uh, sloth or apathy already captures cowardice, but okay, we could debate those fine details. But the reality is that certainly the great majority of people as a default value are cowardly. Why? Because we are a social animal. We wish to remain within the cohesiveness of the group. And it takes a outlier level of courage to say, I'm not going along with it. I will not sacrifice truth in order to you know, get along with everybody in the group. And now I, in academia, I'll, I'll speak for academia and then you can take it wherever you, you want to go. I've always said, maybe you've even heard me say it, that, you know, when you when you select Navy SEALs, until recently when we now have uh, recruitment strategies using twerking drag queens to recruit in the Navy, but until recently, we used to pick Navy SEALs who are going to be brawny, who are larger than life, physical courage, and so on, right? That's why we choose those guys to be Team 6 members, right? Well, I've argued that academics should be chosen not only based on the fact that they have PhD from Stanford and Cornell, but they should be intellectual Navy SEALs. But the reality is we specifically choose people to go into academia or, or the ones who are interested in going to academia. I call them the invertebrate castrati, meaning that they don't have neither a spine nor gonads, irrespective of whether they're male or female or two-spirit or non-binary. So therefore, by definition, you could never attack those bad ideas within academia, since most of the people in academia, not only they are the ones who are originating, spawning those bad ideas, but they don't have the balls to speak out against it. And that's why, I mean, if I can speak about myself, it's very, very difficult for people to, to make sense of me in academia, right? I'm very outspoken. I walk as though I'm 84 feet tall. But that's what it takes. It's not just intellect. It takes a unique personhood to say, sorry, don't count me in your cool kids, cool kids club. You're all full of shit. Yeah, well, um, I would say there's two issues for somebody in most institutions. There's stigma, and then there's the fear of the loss of jobs. And I'm not going to be self-righteous about myself and claim any specific type of courage because I happen to be in an institution where I'm at much less risk of getting fired because I counter liberal hegemony of ideas. And I don't know what I would do if I were in an environment where I uh, risk being fired. And it's asking a lot of people. And I, I quote somebody at the end of the book, a, an oncologist, in a medical uh, academic environment who has been ordered by the national deputy director of the national cancer institute along with every other member of the national cancer centers in the united states to send in a quote more diverse group of nominees for this very prestigious uh grant to do cutting-edge cancer research not to send in more qualified but to send in more diverse nominees and i asked him when are you guys going to stand up for your profession and your the integrity of your research. And he said, we fear our, we need our jobs. We want our jobs. We could stand up and be crushed and nothing would happen. 
I don't face that. So, but if if the if the worst that can happen to you is stigma and being called a racist, then I would say yes, it is it is reasonable, and I would hope to expect that somebody would stand up for what he sees as the truth, and I would hope that I would do so. Um, but again, you know, I would I would um, ask the the liberals they would see themselves as the intellectual navy seals i doubt whether they would cop to the accusation that they don't have intellectual courage they think you know they characterize everybody on the right as election deniers or covid deniers or or whatever so it's very frustrating to try to figure out what is it that we could possibly agree with with the other side and to, and then to start figuring out where we differ and and would they agree with our criticisms of them um i i, I just doubt it so so again i i agree with you that I, I think it's apathetic not to look at the facts that explain our racial disparities but i'm not going to claim any special I don't know, superiority of virtue for the fact that I'm willing to do so. Okay, well, you're not willing to judge, so let me judge on your behalf. I mean, you're being a bit charitable in that, oh, well, you know, if had I been in a in an environment that was a bit more hostile, maybe I wouldn't have been courageous. I, I don't think you would have just sat quietly because I think you would have felt inauthentic. So I understand that each person has to modulate their level of risk. And and, you know, going back to Aristotle, he talked about the golden mean, right? And this is something that I pick up in, in my next book, where I talk about living the good life, everything in moderation. So Aristotle understood very well that a reckless soldier is not a good soldier because he's going to die very quickly. He's going to become a martyr. And by, by exhibiting, you know, unnecessary bravery, you just hang yourself. On the other hand, if you're too cowardly, then that's also not it. So like most things in life, as I explain in the book, there is some sweet spot. And I don't think that most people that you are referencing have hit their sweet spot. They are way more on the cowardly end of the... So I understand there are real pragmatic realities. If I speak out, I, I be fired, then I lose my home and I have to feed my kids. But look, I do have tenure, but that's hardly the thing that stresses me the most. What stresses me more is the number of death threats that I receive. What threatens me, what stresses me more is having to file reports with the Montreal police, whereby when I go to the university, I have security that follows me. That seems a bit more serious than whether you lose your job at Budweiser or not. I, I started developing symptoms of things. I'm, I'm, I'm the, the, the most cool guy who can tackle anybody I started developing anxiety symptoms. I mean, real anxiety, not I feel anxiety because I have an exam. I mean, real physiological. I had one panic attack where for nothing, for no reason, out of the blue, I was going with my wife and kids to get rotisserie Peruvian chicken. And out of the blue, I started getting symptoms as though I was having a heart attack. They rushed me to the hospital. And then the, the attending physician who turns out knew who I was said, no, you're just having a panic attack. So the idea that, you know, Let's give people a pass because the only threats that you face is losing your job. And, you know, most people can't afford that. Therefore, let's give them a pass. Baloney, the people who landed on in Normandy had something more than losing their job. It was called losing their heads. 
yet they all said, hey, sign me up. So no, I'm not going to be charitable about that. The fact that I have tenure doesn't mean that I haven't suffered greatly. As you and I have discussed before, one of my desires has always been to return to Southern California. I know for a fact that several major universities would have wanted to hire me and then it was sabotaged. I did lose there. I know for a fact that it's been four years since I held the highest level university-wide professorship, chaired professorship, which should be a no-brainer for someone with my CV to have. I know for a fact I will never have that renewed. It's been four years that I've been denied that. I know that my teaching load has increased because they're desperately trying to find a way for me to say I quit. So there are many, many ways by which we we all bear a cost beyond just losing our job or not. So am I being too unfair? No, you're not. And it, it just... it. It riles me up inside to hear this. I just, um, we need, it's a collective action problem. If everybody that understands that we are tearing down our civilization could in at one moment unanimously say, stop, we refuse to live by these fictions, it would make a difference. Stop being terrified of being called a racist or a sexist. It is absolutely it with enough courage, and that doesn't wouldn't take so much just to stand up for what you know is true. It would, it would tear this thing down in an instant if people yep. stopped being cowed by being called racist and said, "I'm sorry, I'm not racist. These are the facts. Yeah, these are the facts. You can't scare me with this any longer. I refuse to be the victim of the race hustle." It would end because they don't have reality on their side, but they're, you know, I propose some solutions at the end of the book, but it's very hard to overcome the individual sense of isolation. But yes, if we could gather these people, create some organization that would create strength in numbers, create cover to put the facts out there about the academic skills gap, which I do in the book so people are armed to say, Here's the, re here's the reason why we do not have racial proportionality in this oncology lab or in this Alzheimer's research lab or in this Wall Street trading firm. It's not racism. It's not that we're discriminating against uh, so-called underrepresented minorities. It's because they are not in the pipeline. We can have diversity or we can have meritocracy. We cannot have both given this stage in our history. Any, any institution that tells you oh, I'm going for diversity is basically saying I'm eviscerating standards and I'm implementing racial preferences. Um, so the facts are there, you gotta be armed with the facts and then just say to hell with this BS, I believe in Western civilization. I am not going to impugn it on these phony charges of systemic racism at this point. Now I'm perfectly willing to admit that America's history was white supremacist. It was, we were an apartheid state, but we are not that country today. What do you think? I mean, in, in the parasitic mind, I, I offer some psychological explanations as to why there's this kind of orgiastic victimology narrative. In in your view, so forgetting about the the, the, the white liberals who are doing the victimology by proxy, what is it that causes the the so-called marginalized groups to wallow in that victimology? And before you answer, so I think you already know my background, but for some of the folks who may not know also my wife, so my wife is also Lebanese. Her family also fled Lebanon because of the civil war. 
her her grandparents fled the Armenian genocide. We fled Lebanon under imminent threat of execution as Lebanese Jews. My grandparents fled. So it's not 300 years ago something happened in Mississippi. I had to wear the really good running shoes and run really fast so that my head was not detached from the rest of my body. And yet I don't wallow in that victimology. It's part of who I am. I recognize it. I talk about it. It's an indelible part of who Gatsad is. But what makes me the person that I am is that I have overcome that rather than saying, you owe me, I'm a victim. I'm not a victim. I was a victim and I've come. So what is it that makes some of these groups unable to do that, but rather, whether it be the indigenous folks or some of the you know narrative in the United States, it's almost as I'm a victim, therefore I am. How do we snap them out of that? I know. I, I'm going to speak very, very bluntly, God. I am sick of hearing Black leaders say lower standards on our behalf. That's the claim again and again and again. If we're not doing as well on the SATs, on average, throughout the SATs. If we don't do as well on the law school admissions test, on average, again, there's individuals who do not conform to that average that are outperforming thousands of whites and Asians lower the LSATs or get rid of the LSATs on our behalf. If we don't do as well on the medical college admissions test, get rid of the MCATs on our behalf. How about for once you say we will meet the standards and we'll beat you at your own game, which is what Jews did. They were kept out of country clubs, out of banks, out of law firms. And they said, okay, we're going to beat you at your own game. We're going to become so good that you have to hire us if you want to have a competitive edge over your competitors. And it's extremely dispiriting to hear this uh, reaffirmation of an acting white ideology from the inner city, which is that if you put out academic effort and, and actually take your textbooks home and study, you're acting white. If you put in effort, you're acting white. If you're not truant, you're acting white. This is a completely pathological cultural idea um, and I don't know. I mean, it's not for me. One could. I'm treading on very thin ice here because obviously I'm I'm hot, wildly vulnerable to the accusation of well, you're speaking from a position of white privilege. But uh, one can just speculate on some possible explanations, which is that it's it's seductive to be a victim. That our culture can form confers enormous benefits uh, to being a victim. If you're a leader of a victim group, Shelby Steele at Hoover has long, long uh, sh- uh, sort of limbed the codependency between guilty white liberals and, and black hustlers uh, with the black hustlers ch- claiming victimhood, playing upon the moral guilt of, of liberal whites. And they both give each other meaning in life uh, but one also has to ask, and again, I'm I'm going out on a limb here, uh, whether the concerted embrace of victimhood stems from some fear that you, that with barriers of segregation having been torn down, uh, that we're not going to be able to come up to the same standards. I would say, give it a try, guys. Um, and and put in the effort in a way that is not being done as much as it should be now, uh, and 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 kick the traces out and just say okay, 
we're on our own. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna emulate as bourgeois values of of personal responsibility and self control and go as far as we can. Well, and look, uh, you probably have heard of this uh, finding that basically says that it, one of the best predictors of likelihood of your children being successful is the number of books that are available in the parents' home, right? Well, that, that's not a genetic thing. That's not running through my DNA. That's not coded in the double, right? It's it's a behavioral pattern that causes me to become you know, more knowledgeable, right? Uh, Thomas Sowell, who last I checked was a black man who didn't, you know, wasn't born with a, you know, the proverbial spoon in his mouth. I remember there's a story that he tells where he first discovers, you know, that there's the New York public library. Have you heard him tell that story where he, some, some guy takes him, I can't remember if it's an uncle or someone takes him to the library and he realizes, Oh my God, I can just get this card where I'm allowed to go into this place and just take out books and read. And guess what? Little Thomas Soul becomes big, incredible Thomas Soul. It didn't matter what skin you was, right? I, I tell another story in the parasitic mind. I, I, forgive me if you've heard it, Heather, but maybe not. Uh, when when I had finished my MBA, so I did an undergrad in math and computer science. It's, it's relevant to the story. That's why I'm, I'm mentioning the bio. So I did an undergrad in mathematics and computer science. It, it doesn't get more theoretical and technical than that. Then I did an MBA with a mini thesis in operations research, which is an applied mathematics field. And I was then thinking about going on immediately for my PhD because I'd always wanted to go into academia. One of my brothers who at the time lived in Southern California was trying to convince me to take a break after my MBA and maybe work with him for a couple of years, put on the proverbial suit, and then I can go back to my PhD. Well, when I returned to Montreal to see my parents and my mother had caught wind that this might happen, she takes me to a side room, very, very concerned and to the point of whether I might be leaving after my MBA to work with my brother. She said, you realize that if you leave now, People are going to talk about you. You will have, you will be considered a school dropout. So from my mother's standard of Jewish excellence, it was, you know, you're going to bring shame to the family with an undergraduate in mathematics and an MBA. Do you want people to laugh at us that we have a dropout in the family? Now, it's not that, of course, I went on to do a PhD to please my mother, right? Uh, but that gives you a sense of the kind of values that are inculcated in the home. Now, compare that to a home where, as you said, if I start study for tomorrow's logarithmic exam, I'm acting white. It doesn't take much of an explanation to understand which one's going to succeed and which one's going to fail. Yes, absolutely. But God, I would say it's, it's easy to say, well, just be more literate in your home, be more interested in intellectual matters, be more interested in reading, have more books. But the question is, uh, what leads one to be that way and not be that way as parents? Obviously, uh, intellectual capacity is spread across any given population in a, in a bell curve. And most human beings probably are not particularly intellectually inclined, Thomas Sowell was, uh, but that doesn't mean that he represents the average or that, or that you and I represent the average of our groups. So, uh, you know, we always talk about, yes, the number of, of words that children hear by the time they're three or whatever is another predictor, but you can't just tell that mother, talk to your child more. She may be talking to the maximum of her capacity 
and it's not just a race thing. Obviously, there's the black, the white underclass, you know, the Appalachian meth heads, and I have a pair of them living underneath me in Irvine, and it's really quite eye-opening, I can tell you. Um, but so, you know, we're we're treading on very thin ice here uh, of whether there are certain inherited uh, it, it predilections towards certain types of activity that may be lying behind these cultures. So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. Well, although even if you were to concede, and I'm, I'm not sure one can, but let's say we, we would concede that there are inherent differences, differences and predispositions, but for most human phenomena, as you know, it's an interaction between genes and the environment. So notwithstanding that we might start at different starting points, whatever that cause might be, then the culture can either ameliorate this or worsen it. And right. So, so, you know, uh, Larry Elder and, and other leaders in the black community have placed all their chips on father absence, right? That, that, you know, if only you improve on that metric, right? You, I think he, he, he quotes, you know, in the 1950s, how many black families were intact husband, you know, dual husband, uh, father, mother versus now it's, it's, it's a catastrophe. We are a biparental sexually reproducing species. That's the default value. Children expect to have both parents. So if I think you probably only improved on that metric, you would see great improvement downstream, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. And I've, I've argued this myself. I'm going to argue against myself right now, but I've absolutely, I every opportunity I talk about the breakdown of the Black family is totally catastrophic. It is civilizational ending when you destroy the marriage norm and you, you say to young Black or young boys, you can go and serially impregnate females. And we are not going to expect you as a society to support your child, to marry the mother of your child. You can just continue to serially impregnate and that's the norm. And your mother will go get a government check. That is that that guarantees that you've got a bunch of feral males running around. That having been said, it is it is easy to say, and it's not that we shouldn't be saying it, you've got to get married. It's hard to do. The in the black community, the relation between the sexes is very, very troubled. It is very toxic. If you listen to rap, gangster rap, rap music, it gives you a little clue as to how males and females uh, regard each other. Um, so it would be great to knit family back together. But again, we keep sort of having an infinite regress of what's the core problem here and, and how do you overcome that? Uh, but I would love to have, you know, right now we're at 71% of black children are born to single parents and and often they have a mother that's engaged in multi-partner fertility with fathers that are also engaged in multi-partner fertility meaning they have children by different set of partners on both ends it's 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 an absolutely uh tragic situation wow uh, I'm, i want to be mindful of time we only have i think uh, six minutes left so i'll ask you one or two more questions most of the topics, if not all of the topics that you cover in your book, are, are books are thorny, right? It's you know, the, the are cops racist? You know the the, the diversity delusion, uh, the current book when race trumps merit, and so on. 
do you ever foresee at some point writing a book on you know the, the history of German Baroque music or oh. or are you somehow driven because of your allergy to bullshit to always be writing books where you weigh in to correct the official record is that just part of your makeup your mindset and choosing what I'm going to write next or can you do you ever foresee going into new lands oh that's an absolutely perfect question. I, 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 I struggle with this all the time. I sometimes think I just want to write about beauty. I'm sick <laughs> of this. I, I can't stand it any longer. It is the, the nonsense is too overwhelming. I want to, I want to escape it. I want to go someplace where I don't have to feel like I have to fight what you say, the bullshit all the time. Then I have to say, I, I do write about beauty. I mean, I've I've done a lot of music reviews and art reviews that are relatively untouched by politics. It's actually the hardest thing to do, to try and find language, to try and convey what I am feeling from a, a work of music or or a, a work of literature um, is is much harder than writing an, a, an, an agonistic piece that is trying to take down bullshit there you've sort of got your facts out there so I go back and forth but yes my goal in life initially was always to be a literature professor and to have that luxury of being able to wallow in the greatest works of, of human achievement and then you feel inadequate to them and can your critical language possibly match them and then then we of course had the rise of high theory which proposed absurdly that the reader is more important than the author and and that you know we all got involved in generating this ridiculous language of deconstruction and then that mutated into all sorts of worse nonsense uh, in order to kind of maybe overcome our feelings of how can I possibly match the beauty of of uh renaissance pastoral poetry or the 19th century novel I was just going to say, just because you mentioned deconstructionism, if I'm not mistaken, the the guru of deconstructionism, Jacques Derrida, is from UC Irvine at one point, if I'm not mistaken. And so if you're in Irvine, maybe you can wallow in the smell of his bullshit because you, you're, you're, you're in the general area. Are you currently in Irvine? No, but I go back on May 20th. I cannot wait. I'm counting the days. Yes, UC Irvine was the first uh, university that created a entire department of critical theory like it just jettisoned any pretense that we're actually reading literature we're just going to read each other which is what they've been doing anyway so they might as well make it official all right well let me plug the book one last time and uh, then i know you have to go so guys when race trumps merit how the pursuit of equity sacrifices excellence destroys beauty and threatens lives it's out now please go and check it out heather Come back anytime you'd like. It was too short. Such a great time seeing you again. And hopefully we can see each other in Southern California where I'll be there later this summer. Oh, do please contact me for sure, God. I would love that. And uh, thank you for your great questions. Thank you so much. Stay on the line. Cheers.